Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is the 14th of November. It is officially the second week of what I've been calling Matt Levine week, <laughs> because it's <laughs> Matt Levine being the newsletter writer for Bloomberg, who he occupies the same space. And I don't, I mean this complimentary towards both people. Like he sort of occupies the same space that Bill Simmons did in sports in 2005, <laughs> you know, where there's just so many words and like people kind of look at his columns as an event almost right like and everybody who is of a certain demographic which is like kind of like it's like if you grew up reading bill as i did and then now you have like a brokerage account oh my god <laughs> <laughs> that's so disturbing <laughs> it's like it's like bill has been reborn um in the print form into Matt Levine, you know, and you're just like, oh, my God, I have 5,000 words in my inbox again, you know, about something I'm super interested in. Um, anyway, to talk about this, we brought on uh, Max. This is your second time on, right? Yeah, I, I'm sort of guest. the poor man's uh, TTSG brand, uh, Matt Levine. I think. <laughs> yeah, Max, on. Uh, Max Reed is the author of Read Max, which is a Substack that everybody, if you haven't already subscribed to, please subscribe to. Max, what's the what, what's the URL for that so that people can just maxreed.substack.com. It's R E A D, like reading a book. Um, please sign up. So good. Yeah, and Max has written some really good stuff about this as well but um much funnier than matt levine i don't know matt levine is actually like i think what (laughs) he's got going for him is he's like a guy who really knows his his banking law but actually can land a joke or two (laughs) not not he's not like the funniest guy in the world but you can imagine a boring guy doing that like even just a mind like minutely person personable guy (laughs) makes a huge difference yeah he wrote a piece about like um today i think it came out it was about reviewing the balance sheet of ftx And there's a lot of like little jokes that made me chuckle, you know. Um, That's all I need. (laughs) In this like sea of like just this block of text, you know, and I'm just like, I don't know what. I feel like this podcast has gotten in the real dad direction because we had the whole like (laughs) dad weed thing, and now we're like the brokerage version of Bill Simmons. Like, (laughs) I'm not sure what to do about this. I'm not saying the podcast is. I'm saying that you know Matt Levine is. We can be the podcast version of. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. Well, let's just jump right into it. We're going to talk about FTX and then we're going to talk a bit about Twitter. Right. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, look, I want to give a Max jump in or Tammy jump in whenever you want, but I just want to give everyone a quick rundown of what happened, which is basically there's this exchange called FTX and there was a Max, you described it very well in your last newsletter about this, where there's like also there are three players here. So who are the three players? So in terms of businesses, the three players are FTX, which is uh, or was until recently by trading volume, the second largest cryptocurrency exchange on the planet. Uh, Binance, which is the or Binance, I, is, is one of these like crypto things where words don't get pronounced out loud very often. <laughs> I think so it's I hear Binance, people saying yeah. both things, but, but uh, I'll call it, we'll call it Binance. For Wait, do people say Binance? I've heard somebody was just on TV saying like Binance. Finance. I can't remember where. <laughs> Clearly not oh, on Binance, a, Binance. Oh, I get it, like, yeah, Binance. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. We'll call it Binance. Binance is the largest uh, yeah. cryptocurrency exchange by trading volume. And Alameda Research, which was the, uh, the, the sort of crypto trading firm that was associated with FTX. And then, like, there's three people who are associated with those three businesses. Sam Bankman-Fried, or SBF, who founded both Alameda Research and... Uh, 
um, FTX. And uh, uh, I actually don't, what's his, his, his CZ Binance is his Twitter handle. What's yeah, his name? Chang Peng Zhao. Who is the CEO of Binance um, and who is like SBF's biggest, there's sort of the biggest rivalry in crypto. And uh, Caroline Ellison, who is SBF's friend, former girlfriend, and the head of Alameda Research, and also the author of this Tumblr that people found that we can talk about (laughs) a little later. Um, So like these, it's like, like one of the reasons this story I think is hit so big isn't just that like the, the, the whole crypto world is kind of collapsing and this guy who everyone thought was, who is kind of a respectable billionaire, it turns out to have been a total fraud. It's that there's this really neat kind of narrative um, Mm -hmm. arc where you have uh, two guys who were business competitors and rivals who represented two sort of different ways uh, or attitudes towards crypto and the, and the, the financial scene um, engaged in this. Uh, I mean, really it's CZ's CZ is the reason that SBF went down that, that CZ right. sort of like took him out. Um, and, uh, and so it's, it's perfect. I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but as it turns out, Michael Lewis, the author of Moneyball has <laughs> yeah. been embedded with SBF for the last six months or a year or something like that. No, that's that so wild. <laughs> He, I mean, he must have been so happy. I mean, secretly, <laughs> but apparently, there he's already shopping it around, and somebody leaked a memo where he calls them uh, the Luke Skywalker <laughs> and Darth Vader of crypto, which is like the funny to me, like the worst. It actually makes me worried about the book a little bit because it's yeah, like me the worst too. I, I wonder how far he is in the book. Like that's what I was worried about. Where I was like, I, I mean, I think that this book was going to be pretty approving of SBF, yeah. you know, of Sam Bankman Fried, and that you know. CZ was going to be like the shady uh, Asian, you know, uh, guy who's like the Darth Vader, right? Like, I can't see because he's like the Luke Skywalker Darth Vader. Like, well, who's who? And like, like, it's not like the thing that was sent out was like a two paragraph long pitch thing from his agent or something like that. It doesn't really specify this. But like, do you remember when Joe Posnanski was writing that book about Joe Paterno and he had like almost finished the book? I wonder if it's like that, but like apparently Michael Lewis hasn't started writing it yet. And so like maybe like Michael Lewis, this is good for Michael Lewis, (laughs) but I can also kind of see this scenario where he's like, oh no. Yeah, (laughs) seriously. (laughs) I've got notes and notes and notes. (laughs) Max, who was the guy that you quoted in your newsletter who analogized them more accurately to Stalin and Truman? Right. It was the, the, the FT Alphaville. There, there's like a weirdly, I mean, while we're talking about Matt Levine, there's like such a fun, there's a, actually a weirdly big number of like pretty funny, cynical writers about finance stuff. And if, cool. if you want more of it than just Matt Levine, Financial Times' Alphaville blog is really good. And I can't remember which one of them said it, but their analogy was like, yeah, there's a Cold War in crypto and CZ is Truman and SBF is Stalin. And I was like, well, it's just like kind of intense, but like at least you're not saying one is the good guy and one is the bad guy. It's two war criminals, you know, duking it out. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's like the Luke Skywalker part is so, it's like, we can talk about this in a second here, but just to like think about this a little bit more and to like give the listeners who don't know that much about it a little bit more context. Basically what happened was that, this is the quickest I can say it, what it turns out that like CZ figured out and sort of leaked this information, right? That um, that FTX, Alameda Research, everything like that had, you know, was more or less insolvent or or behind. And that like what came out was that essentially what Sam Bankman-Fried had been doing in the most like simple way possible is that he had been 
funneling money right in the form of and then it's in the form of all sorts of stuff and like some of the balance sheet stuff that came out today is even funnier because you find that it's not just like the ftt token that ftx was making but it was also other tokens that they made where they were just like i don't know this is money you know and like, they just like <laughs> created it um that he was giving money to his you know uh i don't even know how to explain it like the people are living in a polycule together right and so like his uh, we'll just Bahamas. say his lover caroline <laughs> ellison right they all lived in a house together and that like the people at alameda were just torching this money right like they're just losing 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 money and he would just like figure out a way to sort of scam up more money and he would keep giving it to them and it was like billions and billions of dollars that are missing now that you know i imagine they're just gone in trades like trades gone wrong um and that uh yeah now the whole crypto world is kind of shocked the you know the ea world effective altruism <laughs> world is shocked right like um i think there's all of silicon valley is shocked and yet like one of the things that I keep thinking about is like, this is like one of the least. Yeah, I was, I was like, that was the smooth sort of thing. <laughs> like, uh, we have a long history of this now, you know, um, in crypto, which is something I've paid a lot of attention to over the past like eight years or something like that. And like, every time there is an attempt to sort of make crypto clean, you know, like I always try and think of it, you know, the movie like My Fair Lady, like uh -huh. where... There's like no more Cockney accent. She's like, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's kind of people keep trying to do that with crypto because they're trying to like present Eliza Doolittle, aka Bitcoin, as like you know a finished. They're like, this is a lady now, and you can like you know like we are gonna go to the ball, but society. the ball is like you know like a bunch of like pension investors and private equity people, personal wealth managers, and they're like put more money into crypto, and like Sam Bankman Fried. For whatever reason, which, you know, I think we should talk about became like the number one, yeah. like the most cleaned up that crypto could ever get. Right. Yeah. Which is somewhat like at some level, it's ironic because like this is a guy who would like show up and sit next to uh, was it like Bill Clinton or something. Like that? Yeah. And Tony Blair. Like, he was at some yeah, yeah. some crypto conference with those. Two. He's wearing like a T-shirt and shorts and like his hair is all over the place. And it's just like but this was the guy, you know, yeah. and so I don't know, Max, like, you know. Like what, what, like what are some of the things that made him like the guy? I mean, I, it's interesting. I mean, for one, one thing that I think is really important is that his parents are Stanford law professors. Like he right. came from the establishment. Like his parents are people who know people uh, in these things. He went to MIT. He obviously is a really smart guy. Uh, you know, he's smart in that stupid way that a lot of, sort of crypto <laughs> guys are. Um, and then he worked for Jane street, which is a wall street trading firm. It's sort of on the like left, like left edge, not in the, not in the political sense, but in the weirdness sense, like it's one of the kookier kind of quant firms, but it's a real deal firm and they make a ton of money. And he left Jane Street and he started doing these trades and 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 set up FTX. And, you know, because of this sort of social network that he came from, um, and I think because of the fact that he was really heavily involved in the effective altruism scene and giving all this money, um, yeah. it meant that he has sort of had this appeal, I think, to people who either who were skeptical of crypto or people who were sort of crypto curious, but really needed like a guy who they felt like was a, the son of a friend of theirs mm -hmm. or could have been a friend of theirs or a college classmate right. of theirs or whatever. Had Theranos vibes in that sense, for sure. Totally. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, like I even said in the, in the piece I wrote today, like even for the media, he had this particular attitude, you know, we're like this is not the last time Matt Levine will come up of the many times <laughs> he'll come up in this conversation. But like one of the funniest things 
that happened in the world of crypto this year is SBF went on a Bloomberg podcast with Matt Levine and tried to sort of describe to them what yield farming is in as neutral a term as possible. And yield farming is like a, you know, it's a, it's a crypto process. It's one of the sort of easiest ways to make money in, in, in crypto. And, and SBF described a Ponzi scheme and Matt Levine was like, you just described a Ponzi scheme and you, and they also, they sort of giggled about it. And then they, you know, it was whatever. I, I don't mean to giggle, but I don't mean they giggled about it. Like Matt Levine was like, that's okay. And that's great. I just mean like, yeah. there's something appealing about a guy who's willing to be as cynical about Bitcoin as journalists are, because so much of what you encounter, like if you have the Winklevoss twins, you know, speaking about semi-respectable faces of crypto, you have the Winklevoss twins come on your podcast and you ask them about crypto they're going to they're going to sell you some vision of the trustless future and you know free remittances and like all this stuff and spf's just sort of like i'm in it to make money to give away um you know right. and i think that in a sort of counterintuitive way that actually opened up the doors for him in a way that the super ideologically committed bitcoin guys just couldn't get in um you know now in retrospect every i think a lot of the people who sort of bought this line are, are looking at themselves like well if he was just in it to make money to give it away, of course he was probably also just scamming people because he wasn't really didn't really give a shit about anything except for making the money to give away. Could right, I just interject right. for a second? To, so, just like yeah. two quick questions about the functioning of it. Like, what do we know about who the investors are, and what when we say like FTX is an exchange, does it function like a traditional brokerage, like with real money? Because we're seeing a lot in the press, like also a lot of sort of analogies to two thousand nine. Um, so in what ways, you know, does it kind of function? Oh, that yeah, there's way like a Lehman Brothers money. type of yeah. analogy that's become popular. Well, an exchange is basically you put take. It depends on the exchange, right? But um, something like FTX that's big, you can take money. I think like actual dollars and convert it into what you want. And the FTX thing is that they can offer you like different products that other exchanges can't. So like for example, at Coinbase, which is the number one. Mm-hmm. I think in terms of volume, crypto wallet type of thing, right? Exchange, like you just kind of like give them money and they hold your Bitcoins for you. And you can swap them for other types of things, right? So if you think that Ethereum, is, for example, is going to go up faster than Bitcoin, then you can swap it out and then you, you know, convert it back and then you can make profits that way. That's how a lot of crypto trading has been done, right? FDX was a little bit different, I think, in that it offered more of the types of tools that uh, advanced type of brokerage mm-hmm. account would offer, right? Leverage or whatever like that. But I don't think it was really reinventing the wheel in any type of way, right? It was just that it had very high volume, right? And that um, and that it had very aggressive marketing that was based on a lot of ways in what Sam Bankman-Fried was able to do. You know, I mean, yeah. the reach of this, I, I think one of the things that's interesting to me is like, how are we going to look back on the last three years of this, right? Where there's basically this year in the major league playoffs, the umpires had FTX badges on their wow. Um you, on their jacket. I was thinking about they must have been so, so MLB must have been so happy this happened like after <laughs> the World Series. <laughs> I went to a Cal football game 
half of the Cal Stadium, the Cal football stadium is this amazing saga that like, you know, is basically it's ha- it has bankrupted the University of California, you know, like <laughs> they're building this football stadium. And um, there's all this stuff with like people who didn't want trees cut down and they would go live in the trees and that made it even more expensive. It's like it basically like trying to like do a big, big, like dumb project in Berkeley is impossible <laughs> you know, because, like, for all the reasons that you would think. And um, but like in their desperation to make some of this money back, they sold off so much of that stadium to FTX, you know, and my yeah, kid, I went to the football game with my kid and my kid like had got like a bobblehead FTX bobblehead of like some Cal player. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> there's like FTX symbols everywhere in that stadium. I mean, the and, heat, don't the heat play in FTX stadium? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Until they, like five days ago, they played in FTX stadium. Yeah, they, they said they're like reviewing the, the, <laughs> the partnership or something like that. The Lakers play in crypto.com, yeah. which like, you know, everyone still calls the Staples Center, except some people have said, no, you know, they paid for it and we got to respect <laughs> that. So, <laughs> some people have started calling it the crypt, which is fine because the Lakers are terrible. But like, um, I don't know. It's like, I, I, it's just like this, this like explosion happened that for those of us who were in crypto back in like 2014, 2015, like, this is what we always wanted because we felt like this was when we would all get rich, you know? We'd be like, listen, all we need is institutional buy-in. All we need is institutional buy-in. And the phase of that institutional buy-in always changed. Now, like, as Max mentioned for a while, it was the Winklevoss twins, right? And um, I don't know what they're doing now, but I guess they're in a band and they sing, like, covers of Mr. Brightside or something like that, which is cool, you know? Like, I'm into it. But, like, I think their idea of becoming, like, the wealthiest people on, in the history of the world, which was basically their plan, I think, like, is no longer happening. But, um, you know, what they want to do is they want to create, like, a Bitcoin ETF. Like, that was their big, big thing, right? Like, they're like, if we can make a Bitcoin ETF, then we can have mom and pops and like grandma all invest in Bitcoin through the ETF because they'll be much more willing to do it if they're doing it through their Charles Schwab brokerage account, yeah. right? And that'll feel safer to them. And so it was like a multi-year lobbying effort to try and get like a Bitcoin ETF and that was it, right? And I think what the Winklevi did not understand was that like you didn't really need any of that, you know? You just needed like a Messiah figure that was going to come through and that basically the media had to buy that messiah figure right and like that's one of the things i want to talk about because i think that there's part of this which is like a massive failure of the media in general with this guy like i don't know max you want to talk about that at all yeah i mean it's it is so i i will confess to not having paid a huge amount of attention to sbf's money except for just taking at face value the idea that he had a ton of it and now having done as much reading as i can over the last week or so trying to sort of think about what happened and how it happened it's it's amazing how how little sort of specific reporting there has been over how SBF made his first ten billion mm-hmm. or how precisely what Alameda was up to and how it was doing it. So like the story has always been, and I'm sure this is true that SBF made a ton of money, a killing in like 2017, um, arbitraging Bitcoin prices between Japan and the U.S. Right. Basically, and he would wake up early every morning and run his bots, and he could make a 10 percent return. So he was just doubling his money every 10 days or whatever. But there's very little kind of um, specific reporting about how the money showed up, where it came from, you know, what it was doing. And that's true from 2017. It's true in 2019 when FTX gets founded up to today. And so you sort of like, this is not like, there, there, there's this kind of 
mystery about it that only once everything falls down do you stop and say, well, hey, wait a minute, like, like where did this come from, and why do we trust that they were that these guys knew what they were doing or what they were what they were up to? And you know, for whatever value of we, like, I'm not I'm not sure how many people really did it, but certainly he was on the cover of Forbes twice. You know, he was covered constantly in in the Times and other places. Um, and I think you know, we've we, a lot of this also has to just do with him being. Uh, a figure in philanthropy and being part of this sort of very media friendly, very media attentive movement, the effective altruism movement, you know, that, uh, that people wanted to talk about and people wanted to feel good about, I think. And so to have a guy making billions, but giving it all away and donating to a ton of Democrats and all this stuff, I think it was very easy for people to not want to ask questions more than they, more than they had to. People wanted to believe in the Messiah figure, I think. My theory is that like everyone is making so much money because of the rise in Bitcoin and Ethereum prices, you know, and that enough people had made enough, some money in that, that they wanted it to be real, you know, and all that sort of ethical concerns or whatever were not that interesting anymore. And like nobody really scratched beneath the surface in any sort of way. But like the first people who didn't scratch beneath the surface are is like Sequoia Capital, for example, yeah. Yeah. right? Like Silicon Valley like did not look behind beneath it the hood at all of any of this. And like I don't know, like they all say we're shocked, we're shocked. I don't like I have no idea if they're shocked or not, you know. But like I imagine some of them are, and some of them might have had some inkling about this. But I mean, is yeah, this I mean, any I different than bit. anything else? And I, I guess I just like, how unusual is this? It seems like there's so many examples of this in our fin- recent financial history. I mean, I think this this scale is the thing that makes this this particularly shocking. Like, I mean, this the scale and the kind of the extent to which it betrays the public image of FTX and SBF as these sort of um, responsible, stable, establishment adjacent actors in the space. Um, you know, like the, the pre- sort of the precise uh contours of the fraud here are um are not like like i would i it's a very like i this the question of like how to map out these frauds is really interesting and whether this is like on a on a micro level this is different than a ponzi like like basically what happens is there was no firewall between alameda and ftx so alameda was just trading with user money or with client money basically which is something that uh, I mean, it happens on Wall Street, and it's a huge scandal when it does. MF Global is probably the most recent famous example of a of a trading firm that that got in a ton of trouble for this. Um, you know, and so like on a micro level, that's different from a Ponzi. But on a macro level, like what's happening is money's getting handed to the firm, and other people can take out their money, having made money if they want to. But at the point at which everybody wants their money back or wants to know whether there actually is enough money there, it disappears. And that's the thing that seems to just be that Ponzi ish. That Ponzioid kind of structure—that's the thing that just appears everywhere. And something that I don't really know because I haven't—I don't know enough about this space. But you know, one of the things I don't quite understand about what CZ is doing here and what Binance is doing is this—this this makes me so much less trustful in any crypto exchange yeah. in the crypto space in general. So to come up and like to knock down your biggest rival right like that, and then not even to buy them, which was originally what he was going to do—he was just going to sort of take it over to say they're so fucked I don't even want to deal with that like I you know it doesn't make me have a huge amount of faith that that Binance isn't going to go the right. same way too um, right. Right. and I'm everybody's got reasons why this thing or that thing is going to happen but it just seems like a you know like like the kind, the kind of thing that you wouldn't want to do if that was if that was your business <laughs> yeah it's interesting because like you know like crypto has had a lot of scandals obviously you know and um and generally it like 
the skin, the price of Bitcoin is the only thing that matters. Everything else is pegged to that. And the scandals generally don't have too much effect on the price outside of like Mt. Gox, which was like way, way back in the day, right? And so you have this Tether scandal, right? And like nobody really cares. You have like other exchanges getting hacked for hundreds of millions of dollars and like the price still goes up. And it's like this thing where as long as the price goes up, it's okay. But like this happening at a time when the price was like way down and then tanking the price even further. I think that's part of it is that like, People were almost reaching the capitulation point in this. Like you think about the Bitcoin investor's brain, which I can tell you about because, you know, in the past I've dabbled, (laughs) right? Sometimes more than dabbled. (laughs) But it's like, it's a place of extreme optimism and like, and like complete imperviousness to reality, right? Like where like you say, oh, wow, China shut down Bitcoin. India is going to ban Bitcoin. This is a big deal. This is like, whatever, like 2 billion people no longer have access to, to Bitcoin. And then you look at the price and the price like goes up to like 1.5%. And you're like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like, sweet. We didn't need them anyway. <laughs> and then, um, but like the time when the reality and like, you know, what they called FUD or which is like fear, uncertainty, despair. Like when that starts to set in is when the price goes down and then you become hypersensitive to everything that happens and everything becomes linear in your brain. Whereas before it was totally disconnected where you didn't feel like the real world is connected to the price at all. Now everything is like connected. And that's when you see people like, you know, like someone will tweet something like, haha, Bitcoin's dumb and it'll be like a comedian or something, you know, and there'll be like 9,000 people in their replies being like, you are spreading fraud, you know, like, (laughs) and that's what, this is like the biggest event of that, of this type of thing that I've ever seen in my life, you know, like where it's just like, everybody is freaking out and it's not like, you know, people with like Rick and Morty avatars (laughs) who tweet all day about like how they don't eat vegetables you know it's like (laughs) it's like everyone across wall street it's politicians it's like tom brady and giselle apparently had like millions of dollars locked up in this type of thing and i just think that it's like basically it's become me like that i that moment has of like fud has become like memefied out into this huge thing you know and it's very hard for me to like feel much sympathy about it because like (laughs) I feel bad for people who lost money, you know, but like, I just feel like this was like kind of inevitable in some ways. I am sort of interested. I haven't, I haven't, I don't have a good sense yet of what, because we were talking before about, Tammy, I think you were asking about like um, how the exchange worked and whether there was actual money in there. And my impression sort of from a distance is that FTX was way more for institutional uh, investors and sort of, and not really retail investors. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see where the what the fallout is with like normal people who are the people to whom I will feel most sympathetic but i think a lot of it was like other you know other investment hedge funds right. and investment firms not necessarily like wall street ones like crypto hedge funds crypto investment firms used ftx as their base and uh, even other platforms were using ftx as their base so that is really fucked for the whole like ecosystem of trading and apps and whatever else but it may have like a relatively small effect on 
obviously not for poor Tom Brady, but I have, <laughs> it's, it's hard for me to think of people for whom I have less sympathy than Tom Brady in same, general. You'll <laughs> um, be fine. You know, yeah. Tom Brady's going to be fine. He'll like, be playing he for the Buccaneers till he's like six. <laughs> he needs, yeah, well, that, that was one thought I had. I was like, maybe Tom needs to play a little bit longer. But, you know, like he needs to focus on, you know, they're five and five. Like he needs yeah. to focus on getting back to the playoffs more than anything. Came, like, you wanted to talk a bit about effective altruism. Like what's your general take on I mean, I have always. So are you plus or minus? Am I plus or minus? I've always. <laughs> I think you can down. probably guess what my verdict is on it, but I've always found it to be in itself its own sort of like Silicon Valley type scheme or, you know, this kind yeah. of like, um, I don't know, marketization or kind of like Davosification of philosophy or whatever, you know. And um, it seems like Bankman Freed's ally at Oxford, this guy McCaskill has come out sort of hand wringing and, you know, kind of giving his like John Stuart Mill version of events here. Um, <laughs> so, but I'm just, yeah, I guess I'm kind of curious if you guys like knowing more about this kind of history, is EA something that like developed to kind of justify some of these schemes? Is it something that was brought in somewhat organically by Bankman Freed? It's always to me seemed like something that's like run in parallel with like essentially like some sort of like financial scheme. Yeah. I mean, I know that SBF was like, sort of deep in, like, I think the nutshell, well, let me start that. I think the nutshell sort of genealogy, intellectual genealogy of effective altruism, and this is this is not like a rigorous understanding, it's just sort of what I gather from, from what I read, is that, you know, there've always been sort of utilitarian, more recent utilitarian philosophers, people like Peter Singer, who is yeah. uh, well-liked by some people on the left, who have these very, like, um, sort of empirically driven, like data focused, rigorous ways of thinking through how you should act in the world and the, and the way you should live. And, you know, that's been, that's, that's, there's a 30, 40 year history of that, uh, like sort of in terms of contemporary thought. And then at the same time, there's this uh, forum called Less Wrong and this guy, Eliezer Yudowski, and this sort of culture of completely insane so-called rationalists who spend all their time sort of talking themselves into insane fantasies. Uh, the idea is basically to kind of, um, the way they would describe what they're doing is using reason to uh, identify what the best good one can do in the world is. But in practice, what they do is they basically, they spin out these absolutely insane thought experiments where they're like, well, someday the worst thing that could possibly happen is if a giant supercomputer developed real intelligence and then right. recreated all of our minds inside the computer and tortured us forever <laughs> and because that's the worst thing that could possibly happen we need to do everything we can to make sure that doesn't happen and that to me is neither effective wow. nor altruism it's just <laughs> crazy shit um and, 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 and that things, would be pretty bad honestly. i mean i'm you're right it would be very bad and and you know these things so so i think these things got sort of there's like effective altruism as a big tent includes both these sort of well the the best way we can help people in the developing world is by buying mosquito nets and giving them cash which right. is not something that is unique to effective altruism either. There's plenty of people in the development world who are not EA who will tell you that's mm -hmm. it. But there is like a sort of utilitarian, let's stop like overthinking this, let's do what what we know we have evidence to do. And then on the other end, you know, elsewhere in the tent is the like, within the light cone, we need to make sure that trillions of humans are born because the best <laughs> possible thing is human life or whatever. Right. And what's what's interesting about SBF to me is that he seems to have sort like, he was it's hard to pin down in terms of what part of the EA world he truly is in. You know, is he like a more mosquito nets for Africa guy or is he like a 
let's stop, um, you know, the, the Hitler computer from destroying all of us forever kind of a guy. That, you know, the SBF was involved in this scene, in the sort of less wrong, rationalist, effective altruism scene for years before he was, uh, well, around the same time as he was becoming a traitor and developing this. So I don't think it was a post hoc rationalization for him making a lot of money. Um, I think it was a sort of a, it walked, it went alongside a, a, a rationalization that went alongside with him making a lot of money. Um, you yeah. know, and I think a lot of it is this sort of too, like effective altruism is a particularly attractive brand of philanthropy for people who are them, who themselves think like that, who have particularly sort of programming oriented, computer oriented brains. It's also flattering. Like if you go into the really crazy bits and you think that artificial general intelligence is the worst threat to humanity, if you're a Silicon Valley investor or a programmer, that's like a really flattering way to think about yourself. So <laughs> you can sort of see why people would do that. It's like, it like interfaces very well, obviously with like all of Silicon Valley's thoughts about how the world should work. Right. Yeah. Which is that you have a group of people who are totally irrational. Right. And that's everybody. Right. And so you look at, you're like, Oh, Greenpeace is irrational, you mm -hmm. know? Say the Democrats are irrational, the Republicans are irrational, politicians are irrational, like Planned Parenthood is irrational, like, you know, like all these activists are irrational. Like the best thing that we can do is that we can figure out a way in which we can sort of figure out a data driven empirical way to look at these things and we can make decisions because we are the best decision makers yeah. right and that um everyone else is going to waste money they're going to torch money like all these sorts of things like are not going to actually change things and it's like the type of thing that you hear a lot right mm -hmm. where people say well why are people protesting you know it doesn't get anything done right. it's like altruism for that type of person totally. right like who doesn't understand a lot of things that happen inside of the human heart or you know or how movements are built right yeah. like they don't understand any of that they're just like well if i give one dollar here then i get 90 cents return on my dollar if i give uh one dollar here i get 40 cents so obvious of immediate return on my dollar so obviously i'm going to give it right. to the 90 cents now that might be a totally fine way to think about these things you know there is a lot of waste in 501c like nonprofit world right but um, it is more like the messianic, like I am the genius that, that has come to like put my brain into this bucket. Yeah. And like, I don't know all this, like, I always just think about this stuff, like in terms of sports metaphors, obviously. And it reminds me so much of like what, you know, like the money ball revolution or like all this sort of like, uh, analytics and sports stuff was, which is just like, listen, you're not wrong. You know, like people should walk more for sure, you know, <laughs> but you've also kind of made baseball unwatchable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and like, um, I don't enjoy watching this thing. And like, what is the point then? You know, yeah. like, it's like unwatchable what you've done to it. And they're just like, no, 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 no. This is like, right. And it's like, I can concede that you're right. You know, <laughs> and that type of thinking is very dependent on the person being able to convince everyone else that they're smarter than everybody yeah. right um for the listeners by the way like tammy is having technical difficulties so we're not sure if she's going to come back this is not just like me and max talking and tammy <laughs> sitting silently like her her internet in korea is crapped out but um like it's not really you have to like convince people that you're smarter and generally the people who are going to accept that you're smarter who make the determinations of whether you're smart are just like people who are Ivy Leaguers, right? Yeah. It's people who like went to MIT who have certain credentials, like my parents are Stanford law professors, so I'm super legit. Right. 
And then it creates its own little thing. And within that group, you might have two people who are very smart, but you could have eight fucking idiots. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. Well, and plus it's, you know, they don't like, I mean, actually, you know what? It reminds me of is those interviews with Dusty Baker, where who is managing the Astros, right. which are like a super analytics and quant oriented team. And he was like, you know, he would have he would have things that he just absolutely fucking insisted on against the quants and against everything else. And I was like, if I was Sam Bankman-Fried, or if you were somebody who had a ton of money that you needed to give away in one way or another, like you probably want like one, you know, numbers guy or a bunch of numbers right. guy who are going to be like, here's the best way to. But you want a Dusty Baker of philanthropy or something in there who's going to be like, no, we really want that guy hitting second. Like, I'm sorry, it's just going to be better. It's going to be more fun. It's going to jazz up the team more. Whatever the philanthropy equivalent of that is of hitting your rookie shortstop second, like that's <laughs> what. That's what. That, I think that's what you know. That's what a real philanthropist should do. <laughs> right. And they sometimes don't have like the thing is like these like the change has been that like before these people are sort of stuck in these little departments and like the people in charge would consult them and either agree with them or not agree with them. Now, I agree that that is too small of a role for like this type of thing. But now like they are like the stars, you know, yeah. and what you see in sports. But what you also see with Sam Bankman Freed is that like basically what has happened is that journalists who also have those same backgrounds decide that like nothing matters except for the people who are of that group who are making the decisions and everybody else is dumb, you know? And so like, I mean, this was what happened in Moneyball too, right? Which is just like, Oh, Tammy's back. Okay. Um, Michael Lewis ignored like Tim Hudson, Barry Zito, and Mark Mulder, who are like three of the best pitchers in baseball because they didn't fit in. And they're just like, oh, well, everything is like, you know, um, about Scott Hatterberg, you know, because he walks. <laughs> and then meanwhile, like Miguel Todd is at like 37 home runs or something like that. He's like, no, that doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is Scott Hatterberg, right? And so right. you create this thing where like the even the players are sidelined and that the only thing is that Paul D. Podesta is telling Billy Bean and Billy Bean is listening to Paul P- T. Podesta, right? Right. Yeah. And like that type of narrative is basically the how all journalism has gone for a very long time. And it's not just like the subjects and the actual words that are written. It is also the structure of journalism has gone <laughs> that way. You know, like I had a boss who was like, we're going to moneyball this thing. And I was like, in my head, I was like, oh my God. God, <laughs> you're gonna moneyball me, motherfucker! No, you're not. <laughs> you're gonna give me my raise and my vacation. <laughs> like, like, who are you talking to? You're not gonna moneyball me. <laughs> oh, anyway, yeah, it's. Uh, I don't know. I hope that that stuff is in retreat now, but I doubt it. You know, like I hope that some stuff like this makes like. Uh, Oh, his parents went to our Stanford professors and he went to MIT. Therefore, how could he possibly be wrong? You know, it was like the Simpsons thing where it's like nobody who speaks German could be bad. (laughs) 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 Um, Anyway, yeah. Tammy, you're back. Yeah, sorry, guys. Did you guys already talk about how this kind of resembles like celebrity journalism or... Sorry. No, yeah. tell us your celebrity. No, I just like I feel like this kind of profiling of like financial figures is like, you know, I mean, it's not a news story, but it seems like it's gone much more of a kind of like celebrity profile route where it's just all about this sort of like access and kind of char- charisma quality. Yeah. I mean, I like a lot of these companies, I mean, this is maybe a natural segue into talking about Twitter, but like uh, there's uh, the, the sort of founder fetish in Silicon Valley yeah. is huge. And 
I think you're absolutely right that like a huge amount of the sort of journalism such as it is, I mean, this is what fortune is basically. I mean, yeah. Um, <laughs> so it's like putting Sam Bankman-Fried's big old head on the cover and saying like, you know, whatever, this is the, he's the next Warren Buffett. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. Um, yeah. It's, it's a, it's a very weird, it's a weird cultural thing that I haven't, that I don't quite have a theory about. Yeah. Yeah. And also like, I, I don't remember this in the past, but like, where rich people always is famous, you know, like Elon Musk, like is the f- most famous person in America. I don't think it's particularly close. He's way more famous than like Lady Gaga or like Jennifer Lawrence, right? Like, that's interesting. <laughs> like, I actually, I think I, I'm just gonna, I'll throw, I'm gonna throw out a theory that I'm like just thinking about in my head right now that I have it possibly is not rigorous at all, but I, I think part of it is like we're ending, and this is how I would connect the Twitter and the FTX stuff too, is. Like this week to me really felt like that was the vibe shift. It was the end of a particular decade plus of time when um, like really specifically what was going on was money was really cheap to access because interest rates were so um, low. And because of that, there was a huge amount of speculative activity and speculative activity in a sort of literal sense, like uh, crypto trading essentially, Mm -hmm. but also in the way the VC uh, game kind of worked and the extent to which you could make a lot of money uh, hitting unicorns that would go 10x and you know having billion dollar companies and i think a, a function like a sort of um one way this economy functions that kind of speculative like easy money economy is you have really good pitchmen like yeah. elon musk because you have like it's the guys who can sell a particular image of themselves and the companies that they work for because at the end of the day you're not you don't you're not really interested in fundamentals like you're not looking at like what are the what you know? What are the P and Ls of Tesla or whatever? You're looking at is Tesla going to be the the biggest car company on the planet in 20 years? Um, and so, right. what you're interested in is does this guy seem like he's going to do that? Even with SBF, who was not like a commanding public speaker, you could still con- he did, and you could still in your head construct a sort of story. Oh, this like he's kind of a weirdo, but like he's the son of Stanford law profs, and he was a Jane Street trader, and he like. He had this genius arbitrage trade totally. with you know Bitcoin in Japan or whatever. This guy is going to be the next Warren Buffett or the next J.P. Morgan or whatever it is. Um, and all of a sudden, money's not easy to get anymore. You know, you, interest rates are way back up. Um, all of a sudden, like energy seems like that's the market you want to be in because that's clearly where all the all the crazy stuff is going to happen over the next ten years. And all of a sudden, you don't really want necessarily big weirdos uh, who can command an audience and media attention in charge of your company. Like you're not looking for your necessarily looking for Elon Musk's and Sam Bankman Freed's. You're looking for like boring, you know, Exxon type guys, like who are just (laughs) going to like make you money every year without you having to really like hear about it or think about it. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So I I don't know. I think hopefully. Yeah. I mean, we'll see. We'll see. (laughs) Max saying invest in energy stocks is not financial advice. (laughs) (laughs) But um, you can take it if you'd like. But, like you know, don't get mad at us. I don't think anyone's mad. ever gone wrong investing in yeah. stocks. <laughs> um, I feel like here in Korea, the because of like the collapse of Terraform and that guy oh, Do yeah, Kwan yeah, going Do Kwan, on the run, yeah. right? And then there was like oh, a yeah. crypto exchange earlier this year that like was like absolutely a scam, like from soup to nuts. And that there's a little bit more of this feeling of like like caution and kind of like a questioning more of these kind of like new celebrities. But it's sort of interesting yeah. because I think in these sorts of like East Asian, like semi-planned economies, like 
the excitement over these people also has to do with this kind of resentment of this old model of where you only have like the giant conglomerates. And so people get excited about these kind of startup-y guys. So, and I think yeah. that is a very kind of like American thing that is, you know, kind of spread to, to other places, the sort of excitement about these creators who, you know, come in. And, um, yeah. and I also wonder if the, I've been thinking also just to channel like former co-host Andy about like the kind of material conditions around like business journalism, you know, and, and sort of if that also leads to some of this where you just sort of go to the easy story, like fortunately we have like the maxes and other people kind of playing around these edges. But I do think like in, in newsrooms, like the business, the sort of business stuff have shrunk quite a lot. Um, and there isn't a ton of research in, in the sort of investigative stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that, that there is a lot of skepticism about tech at like the times, for example. Right. But like, I think they're kind of singular in that, but I also think they do a lot of like the other side too. Right. Like, I mean, they have biz day and they have tech columnists and everything, but, um, I think that there's a little bit of like, they have to, it's like they feel behind legacy media, right? Like they don't, I think that especially with crypto stuff, it's just kind of like, Hey, like we need to figure what the, out this <laughs> right. thing, what this thing is. Yeah, yeah. And some of the people that they have are not exactly equipped to do that, you yeah. know, like, cause they don't know this crypto world and they're just skeptical of it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so for a while that wasn't really working out because like the price of Bitcoin kept going up yeah. and more and more people were doing it. And then you have arenas renamed, you know, and even here, like I remember hearing that, Valley, like there's a period where I like was like, okay, well maybe crypto is going to actually make it to being like this huge thing. And it was just because like a lot of my friends, including like, you know, my best friend from growing up, like who lives down the street or like lives in Oakland, like he's a very talented programmer and he went and worked at OpenSea, you know, which is an NFT trading company. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, well, I don't know if he's going to work there, then they must be attracting talent into these places you know and then you know um and i think that around here in the bay area that was like one of those signals right it was like are the people who you know who are rich and could work anywhere are they starting to work on crypto projects and the answer for a while was yes they like a lot of them were going to work on crypto projects and so um for like a legacy news media to be sort of institutionally skeptical of this thing while all this is happening it made them look kind of bad And now, like, they're all having their heyday, you know, because they're like, I always knew. (laughs) So (laughs) um, I think that's sort of what what happened in the on the business like desk type of places. But maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I wonder I would to to Tammy's point, like, I think I think one of the things you're identifying, Jay, is like there was there's it's not like there's like a shortage of attitudinal distrust for crypto or dislike of crypto or anything else or skepticism or any of these things. But like in terms of real resources put behind uh educating reporters or giving reporters the time and space to educate themselves looking into stuff that just kind of isn't there in the same way you know and it's like you get like it it's it's unfortunate you end up with like a lot of people being like really snotty on twitter and they're right at the end of the day they were right about fdx and about sbf and have been right about crypto in a lot of ways but it's not necessarily convincing because a lot of it is just attitude it's posing and i think that like that can be damaging in its own way. And it is, it's a function of the, it's like the reverse, the other side of the coin in terms of the sort of problem we're talking about with like personalities dominating the, the, the coverage space that it's like, mm-hmm. instead of it being like, well, let's, let's do some like really deep investigative research and work on this. It becomes sort of like, well, 
here's the pro crypto guy and the anti crypto guy, and they're going to duke it out. And like in that world, I'm going to end up on the anti crypto guy's side. That's fine, but I'm not sure he's I'm not sure what he's or she is doing. Um, I you know like it seems worth noting that the 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 outlet that got the balance sheet in the first place that made everybody suspicious of Alameda and eventually blew the whole thing open was CoinDesk, which is like a native right. cryptocurrency. Yeah. Now, like maybe they got it from somebody. Clearly, they got it from somebody who wanted to blow up right. FTX, yeah. but that doesn't it doesn't matter. It was yeah. news. And I will say too, the um, Dirty Bubble Media, which is like a Substack that does really much much smarter than I am able to truly comprehend deep dives into the structure of crypto products and that kind of thing. Somebody who clearly knows their stuff. Oh, wow. um, they were the ones who wrote the first is Alameda solvent post. Um, and those were, you know, like these are not necessarily big names in the sort of anti-crypto world. Uh, I mean, Dirty Bubble is increasingly so, but only be- only off the back of work, not off the back of like sparring on Twitter or whatever. Right. I, I'm, I, I feel like it sounds like I'm subtweeting someone really specific and I'm actually not. Like I just, <laughs> it, it, like I think it's, I, it's more just that people like Dirty Bubble are rare, like sort of yeah. newsletter writers who like take the time to really know their shit and look into it. You know, this is just to bring it back to our top, the top main topic of today. Somebody like Matt Levine is a subject matter expert. <laughs> and part of what is appealing about him is just reading a guy who knows what he's talking yeah. about instead yeah. of a guy who has assessed correctly or incorrectly that the vibes of crypto are like really fucked, but can't tell you like really what's going on there. Right. He did, he did a lot of basic instructional posts this w- last week. You yeah. know, we're just like, this is what a crypto mm-hmm. exchange That's is. Right. And this is how FTX is a little bit different. And it was very helpful, you know, like... I don't know. I mean, I spent a lot of, I think I rec- Aaron Lammer and I recorded like 110 episodes of Coin Talk or something like that. And I even was like a little bit confused by what was happening, you know, because like I couldn't quite figure it out. And I was like, FTX is Blockfolio, right? Like that was actually how a lot of people I think started to trust Sam Bankman-Fried within the crypto space was because like, before he started turning it into an exchange, what Blockfolio, which then became FTX, was that it was the only reliable way that you could keep track of what your crypto money was doing, you know? And because when you're addicted to crypto trading, as I was for a period of time, like all you, you refresh like your, your value, like every 26 seconds or something like that. And like, you want the thing to work. And his thing really worked. So So when when it was like, oh, we're going to actually start like allowing people to trade crypto. I was just like, well, I don't sure. You know, like I trust you more than the dudes who made the app that doesn't work. You know, (laughs) that's like nine (laughs) seconds behind. Fuck them. Um, All right. Well, why don't we the last question I have about this and then we'll move quickly to Twitter, which is just like, Tammy, I don't know. Like, you know, this is something I wanted to ask you about, which is like, you know, Sam Bankman Fried is one of the biggest biggest, biggest donors into the Democratic Party <laughs> over this, you know, period, right? Um, I don't know, like, how do how does this type of thing go down, right? Like, you you have, like, I don't know, they're, like, there's such a wide range of possibilities, right? Which, some of which are, like, kind of scary, right? Yeah. Like, which is just, like, everyone's, like, more people start to think, well, Sam Bankman freed, you know, and they start, like, being like Kanye was right, you know, <laughs> like stuff like like that's that's one option. That would be bad, and like the Democrats are all like funded by X, Y, and Z. This is just like George Soros, you know, like it's that right? Like this is sort of a narrative that you can see taking hold. But I don't know, like what what did you like? What was your reaction when you heard that this guy had donated so much money to the Democrats? Yeah, I, my reaction was that it was completely unsurprising, and it would have absolutely no effect on the Democrats. 
Yeah. Because I think that's always <laughs> that's essentially been their donor base. And really since the 80s, like even when savings and loan blew up and all this stuff, like there has always been this like really untoward association with these bad actors in finance and finance finance. And yet it doesn't seem to matter at all. Um, I can't really think of anyone who would be sort of swayed by this ideologically. I don't know. Maybe that's naive, yeah. but, but that was kind of my reaction. I feel like I should say that the the head of MF Global, which was the trading firm uh, that was doing in 2010-ish what uh, SBF was doing yeah. was John Corzine, who was, that's right, the former Democratic governor of New Jersey. So it's not just that the donor right. base, it's the same right, fucking guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it'll matter. Max, what do you think? Do you think that this is going to be something that sticks? Like my, this morning I tweeted something, which, you know, I deleted as usual, but I was just like, why are the, why is right-wing media not doing this? Like as listeners of the show know, I listen to Tucker's monologue every single night and like um, I have not like Tucker hasn't breathed about it. You know, like I just expected him to be like, you know, like and that's who these Democrats are, you know, like they steal from hardworking Americans like you. And they like like, you know, like whatever he wants to say is probably going to like this is the time, you know, like if you want to sort of subvert some of this dark money like type of narrative like for years all you heard about was the Koch brothers this the Koch brothers that you know putting dark money here dark money there well what was the real dark money you know like you can see him, you can hear him say this you know like and then <laughs> you know like if I was not me you know and I was just like you know some if I was just like sitting down and you know I'd just be like yeah <laughs> what the fuck I have heard about the Koch brothers for years you know like what are you dudes doing you know like it's not an unconvincing argument right but um I don't know how many how much legs it has Max I don't it's a good question I don't know why they're not going for it maybe because crypto they they think that crypto is a republican based thing that, yeah. that the base likes I have no but that's just a guess Maybe they're so busy shooting each other over the midterms last week. I think that's right. what yeah, it I is. Yeah, I think they're like in meltdown mode, which has been hysterical to watch. You know, like them basically, they're like basically two days away from basically being like, you know, um, Democrats with like defund the police. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. it's such a it's so nice to see. It's been such a great thing to watch. <laughs> um, Okay, let's switch topics then. Like, let's go to Twitter here. Now, Max, like, this is also something that you've written very, very well about, I think. Yeah. And, um, you know, like, I, I, let's just try and find, like, because it's been going on for a while, let's just try and find, like, a starting point. And I think the <laughs> appropriate starting point that we can start is, like, this moment that started happening last week, at least for me, you know, whereas, like, oh, my God, this like maybe maybe it's maybe Twitter is kind of screwed, you know, like maybe yeah. it's not going to exist because as I'm not like I'm like a sort of anti-catastrophe person where I just and, you know, to my own detriment. Right. This is why <laughs> this is why I was like, well, I don't know, like, you know, this COVID thing, like, who knows? <laughs> like, so I've been very, very, very wrong because of this. But I thought that Twitter would be like generally the same, you know, but it clearly hasn't been so let's just start at that moment max when was the moment when you started thinking like holy shit maybe this thing is actually gonna go down that's a good question i think when when musk got in front of his employees and said he had no clue what the runway was and it was very possible that twitter would go bankrupt that yeah. was like right. you know i had sort of had my head like okay he's doing he's mucking around he's doing all this crazy shit but like you know, it'll turn it around. I'll figure it out. Like, it's just too big an institution. It's too sort of important for people. And then he's up there just 
just saying whatever the fuck he wants. Like that, he just, yeah. I don't know that like, I think I wrote in my, my newsletter, like my rule of thumb is always like stuff doesn't disappear overnight. Like it takes months right. or years right. for institutions to decay. Like stuff take like just inertia keeps stuff around. But every day Elon Musk <laughs> is doing something that I read about and he's just making it worse. And I just don't understand. Like today, the thing today was, I don't know if any, if you guys saw this, but like he just started getting on Twitter just sounding like I don't know much about programming, but he was making claims about why the Android app was slow. There were yeah, very clearly that, yeah. he didn't know what he was talking about. He'd heard some <laughs> jargon used by an engineer and he was just talking shit. And a bunch of Twitter employees started replying to him like, I've done this for a long time. I actually worked for you and this oh is wrong. God. This isn't why here are some things we could do. And then a bunch of Elon Musk stands like like start dogpiling this guy and then elon pops in and he's like yeah i fired that guy oh my like, god this is not how to run a company like <laughs> I, I like so i don't I, I find myself suddenly becoming like a, a conservative like a conservative businessman when i read <laughs> right. elon Musk do this you know like I'm, <laughs> I, like I want to i want i want i want him to have an mba or something i can't yeah you had to like send, send him, him like lia coca's <laughs> book that like every person in chapel hill had like when i was growing up <laughs> Tim, what, when did you think that like tw- you know i don't know you you're, you have a much less codependent relationship to Twitter than I do. Max isn't even on Twitter. You know, I'm in recovery. Like, I know. God bless Max. Yeah. Holy shit. Um, um, what's your, what's your, wh- when did you start thinking like, oh my God, maybe this is over? Yeah, I think it was with the, the kind of like mass employee decisions. It, it started making me think about like whether this was going to be like a tech, you know, workers coalition moment or there was going to be some sort of organizing. And I think that bankruptcy thing that Max just described for me too was the thing in the news where I was like, what the fuck? I think there was also a round of mass firings where then they were trying to bring a portion of those workers back. Right. I mean, so this is like just incredible, like absolute chaos. And um, it does make me think a lot about what there's been some kind of um, some like whispers, some from like disgruntled employees and some from employees who are basically backing Musk. And so I really am wondering what's going on inside and whether we're going to see some sort of like organizing that's going to come out of this or something. But um, the company might just disintegrate before that occurs. (laughs) (laughs) I know. And it's tough because like we're here, like we have like so many layoffs, you know? Yeah. And it's like the first time I've, I've heard people like talk about belt tightening, you know, even like there, it's just like, oh, well, I guess like I picked the wrong time to not have a job or to like quit my job or go on sabbatical or something that never has happened around here in the past 12 years where everybody who has like, who can code is just like, who cares? You know, I'll just get another job (laughs) in like two seconds and I'll be corded and it'll be fun, Mm -hmm. you know? But right now that's, that's not sort of the sentiment. And I think that that's probably feeding both things, right? It's feeding both Twitter and it's feeding um, the FTX thing. And yeah. like Max mm-hmm. said, a lot of it is based on that. There's not any, the money is not as free as it used to be around here, yeah. you know, and that, um, you know, I don't know, like two years ago is crazy or a year ago, even I mean, it was crazy, right? Like you had houses selling for like, a million million and a half more than ask and people just paying cash like who cares you know and like no, that that is like just evaporated and i think that like when you pile that onto the twitter story the context of it then it just makes everything a lot more precarious now tammy like you know that i am very skeptical of the idea that tech workers will <laughs> um in the bay area will ever unionize but this is the first week where i thought maybe it's possible you know <laughs> because like it's not that their bad management and like their humiliation as workers is happening. 
it's that literally the entire world is watching it happen, you know, and sort of laughing at them, you know, and like that's that I don't know, that can be a radicalizing moment, maybe, right? Yeah, I think so. I guess I just don't know enough about kind of this structure inside and well, now maybe there is no structure inside. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I do think that these these are the, these sorts of like, you know, junctures where there can be changes in, in corporations. I mean, Twitter has always been one of the larger companies where we've essentially seen no organizing. Like even when kind of like Apple and Google and some of these other companies were starting, right. they were starting to be little, you know, glimmers inside. Never really heard anything about Twitter. So we'll see. I would say one one thing I feel pessimistic about on this front is like the length of the acquisition process meant mm-hmm. that there was a ton of attrition just in the time between Musk making his first or, or agreeing to the deal and all of the chaos between that and him actually taking control. I mean, you know, I know a small handful of people and basically all of them have left Twitter just over the summer because they were like, I don't want to have anything to do with what's about to happen. Interesting. Okay. And so... I think, you know, it's like one of these things, if Musk had bought it overnight, if such a thing were possible and walked in the next morning and done all this, I think you would, you know, just speaking totally hypothetically here and counter historically, like I could see a situation where you have like a cohesive, uh, like, you know, relatively secure employee base, you know, with a lot of star talent, all of whom want to stay, being able to organize and fight back. But I worry that yeah. if they're like, they're, they're at the point where it's, they're so beaten down, mm-hmm. they've lost so many people. Like there's just no, there's nothing left to organize. I mean, I don't, I, yeah. I, I haven't done any reporting really inside the company. Cause like I said, all my sources are gone. So, um, <laughs> so who knows? But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm like, it, I think, I think it's like, it's, it would be, it's going to be hard. Uh, yeah. I mean, I hope, I hope they do something cause God, I feel, I just feel bad for them at this point. Yeah. I, it's like, it's kind of hard to imagine like no Twitter, and like some of the times when I was like, this is over is like when he was like, oh, well, I'm going to pay wallet. So everybody who doesn't pay $8, your tweets don't show up. And I was like, oh, well, that will actually kill it, you yeah. know? And I felt a little bit of joy when that happened because I was like, this will be what actually gets me out. Like, it will take this <laughs> to get me out of Twitter. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it will have to be like so humiliating for me to pay to have people see my tweets that I actually probably won't do that, you know? <laughs> but like, it seems like he's walked a lot of that back, you know? And like, I don't know, like, I think that for me, like, it seems like it might just settle in this place where he like is acting like a clown on there all the time, right? And like very little changes about the actual platform itself. And that like, look, these like verification jokes, everything like that is funny and probably screws up the advertising a bit. Like I actually kind of agree with him. I don't agree with him that people run out of credit cards, you know, and therefore it's okay. (laughs) But I do think that people like stop having fun in that sort of way and like get bored with it, you know? Um, And so like, I don't know, like it just seems like, he's like kind of screwing around in public and making mistakes in public, but like, has your Twitter experience, I know that you have burner max, but like, has your like experience <laughs> on Twitter changed all that much? Like, I don't know. I just still like tweet about basketball and then, you know, like you're still doing tweets and then delete them. <laughs> well, I think like, yeah, I mean, like, is, that is scenario you described is that's like your for the, one of the scenarios you laid out max, right? Cause you had this newsletter about like the four possible futures of Twitter and one of them was just kind of like this muddling along, like. <laughs> yeah. And it just... Yeah, I mean that's still is sort of where I, I, I mean, I don't yeah. disagree, Jay. I sort of expect. I mean, I think like, like, um, you know, the the, the news that I was sort of jokey, but like probably the the second most likely scenario after just sort of it's it's fine. Maybe the experience is a little worse. Right. Elon Musk dominates it in an annoying way. Like whatever is like he doesn't 
fully kill it, but he kind of, it just kind of limps along and he just sells it to a private equity firm who really do kill it just by like larding it up with ads or, or whatever, it, mm. or whatever it does. So like, I mean, yeah, I, I, I do think at the end of the day, it's going to be a long, slow decline, whether it's like a long, slow decline of 70 years or a long, slow decline <laughs> of like three years. I think that's that's the real question to me. Yeah, I don't I don't buy this Mastodon. I don't buy that any alternative will take it over either. No, I, I went think, and looked. I mean, I was going to I think there's a like there's a real case to be made that like the things that suck that we all say suck about Twitter are the things that keep people going back. Like, (laughs) I don't think people really want, there are already options to have private places to publish to your friends. They're called group chats. Like everybody's already in those, like the kind of the thing that people want about Twitter is the, the full on, like whether or not they can admit it to themselves, the full on, like being around people you fucking hate um, and encountering (laughs) them every once in a while. Um, yeah, is, and the drama. And the, wait, for, yeah, exactly. It's hard to have too much drama. I don't know. I guess I caused some drama in my fantasy baseball slide. <laughs> like, you know, I don't. I don't like. Like, I was mostly kidding. I was just kidding around. But like, you know, like it's it's like you don't see people really like sort of going through it in in some of these places. And like, I don't know. I, I Terry, what do you think? Like, do you want Twitter to go away? <laughs> I don't think my life would be markedly worse. Although the one one thing that I was thinking about, and I, I know Jay, you had seen this too, but like Max Alvarez, who runs, um, the oh Working yeah, Class this is the last thing we'll talk about. Yeah, yeah. Like he he is this you know labor independent labor journalist, and you've seen some of some other folks like this who kind of are are working outside of like institutional um, structures to do like social justice journalism or other things like that, or talking about how. Twitter going away would have a huge impact on them. It would take them out of a kind of like elite and, you know, whatever journalistic discourse and potentially like a donor base as well. So um, I guess I have been thinking about that a little bit. I mean, I'd like to think that we would find other channels, but um, it's certainly true that Twitter has kind of contained a certain sort of, I don't know, PMC kind of like infrastructure that is like both useful and harmful. Max's tweet or Max Million or Max Alvarez is tweet, not Max Reed, but um, but like Elon Musk tweeted, as Twitter pursues the goal of elevating citizen journalism, media elite will try everything to stop that from happening, which is like, all right, dude. Come on. But Max Alvarez <laughs> says, that's funny because the real news, an independent nonprofit news organization, we do grassroots journalism every day. We talk to workers, victims of the police and prison industrial complex, community organizers, et cetera. And Musk blowing up Twitter is going to royally fuck with our ability to do our jobs. Max Reed. As a proprietor of a publication <laughs> that has no Twitter reach because you accidentally <laughs> nuked your Twitter <laughs> what, what do you think about this? I mean, I, so I, the, the newsletter I wrote last week was a sort of, um, uh, that actually started as a piece. Somebody texted me to ask, there's, she said, my boyfriend just asked me, what, is, what are the media going to do after, after Twitter? Right. And I tried to sort of think through what would happen. Because, you know, obviously my instinct as somebody who's been really harshly critical of Twitter and what it does to people's brains for a long time is to say, it's going to be better. It's going to be great. But um, I don't think it will be. You know, I think what Max Alvarez is saying is almost certainly true for his publication in terms of like getting the word out, finding sources, all that kind of stuff. But I also think what what Tammy is talking about, I think you you called it like a PMC infrastructure, is is like true in in a way that uh, is has a lot of negative consequences, but yeah. if there's no like actual alternative to arise afterwards, uh, what's going to happen is going to be worse. And, you know, my theory is kind of, well, let me put it this way that like 
a lot of journalists, I think, use Twitter as a kind of, John Herman once used the phrase, uh, a, an entire professional context. Like, I think a lot of people, certainly I did this for years, you sign on to Twitter and Twitter is like one, where you get your news, it's two, it's where you share your news. But maybe most importantly, it's sort of where you position yourself in networks, right. in professional networks, in ideological networks, exactly. and how you learn, like what your role is in a system. And in the absence of Twitter, where are you going to learn that stuff? You're going to learn it from your editor. You're going to learn it from your coworkers, probably most of whom have the same kind of like educational and class mm. background as you. Um, you know, you're going to learn it from like the people who bother to write you letters to the editor or whatever. Um, and, you know, Twitter is a distorting lens, obviously. It doesn't really tell you the way the world is. But it, I actually think it's less distorting than what can happen if you're too cloistered in uh, like, you know, in a particular kind of a publication. Um, and that's not like, a, it's not universal that that's the experience for everybody. And, you know, ideally, if you're a good enough reporter, you're constantly kind of self-critically trying to expand your way of looking at the world and talk to as many people as possible and understand as many things as you can. Um, but to the extent that Twitter can, like, you know, this is all sort of an over-elaborate way of saying, to the extent that Twitter has in the past and continues to bring in voices people stories into like mainstream establishment newsrooms that didn't weren't allowed in before and weren't able to get in before i mean i think i think there's a really strong case to me that Twitter has actually been twitter has been a kind of net benefit on journalism oh for sure um, yeah and i think I like and I, so, so to me it's that yeah. like there are there's so we have so far to go and so many ways to improve it and so many better things that could come but if if what happens is twitter shuts down and we all return to the way it used to be that's that's a loss. Um, and I'll say too, like, I actually think, you know, Jay and I, I think I've talked about this before, like, I think we're already seeing sort of establishment newsrooms, management in those newsrooms, I mean, the Times in particular, trying to do their own retreat from Twitter before it actually dies. You know, this sort of the attempts to kind of rescue and rehabilitate James Bennett um, on, on behalf, you know, by <laughs> Semaphore and by the Washington Post or whatever, strike me as this kind of signal like, I don't think it's crazy to say that's a sort of signal from the establishment. Um, I love this podcast because I can, I can like, I can actually sort of get into my like radical, like I can sound like yeah. I can, I can talk, call out the establishment here. That the, 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 <laughs> These are signals that the establishment is saying, we actually don't give a shit what's going on on Twitter anymore. We're going to listen to ourselves and to our rich friends and all your bullshit that the newsroom is trying to bring in. Like, we don't want to have anything to do with that. Um, and so like, some, to some extent, I think you could say that Elon Musk is killing Twitter or trying to kill Twitter or whatever. But like, I think there's a lot of people sort of in the media on his side already who would who would be totally happy. Mm. Oh, yeah, for sure. Right, Tammy, what do you think? Do you think that the, this like, what, what, do, does that seem, I mean, you know, think, we've worked, all three of us have worked at a lot of these yeah. institutions, you know, that would be, that have changed radically, not radically, but have changed around the edges, at least because of Twitter where they're, in, but you know, I'm talking about employment, right? But in terms of their workplace, what the people are interested in, what they care about, absolutely radical change, right? Yeah. Where that's the only thing that people talk about in those newsrooms now is what is happening on Twitter. <laughs> um, except for like a few examples of people, you know, and those people are generally like older and they're cool, you know, and they're just like, listen, I don't know, you know, I'm going to go see my grandkid and, um, you know, I'm going to get these posts up and then, you know, I got my vacation coming. Don't talk to me. <laughs> that's basically it. You know? Those are our newsroom heroes. Oh. Yeah. I think like, yeah. I guess like I, I totally hear what you're saying, Max. I think I'm like a little bit less hopeful about 
the encounters that you're describing? I mean, in other words, like, I don't, I don't know that Pete, like, elites like on Twitter are actually engaging with that many more people in a democratized way than they would if it didn't exist. Because I think most of the impressions that they like, whatever, Twitter impressions and stuff that they have are probably with people who are just like them. I don't know. Yeah. I, yeah. But but maybe you're seeing well, other that's things. That's like what the seeing. journalist Mastodon is, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, for sure. It's like, yeah. it was, I saw the list of people and I was just like, I started making fun of it online and then they, mostly because they didn't let me in, which I was like, kind of confused by. I was like, why would you not let me <laughs> Have in? Have you tried to and get then they were like, and then, I, and then I learned out that they were sending out invites to other people. Anyway, none of this matters, but I looked at the list of people who are on there and it was, it's like, it's like a who's who of like, it's like if you did a journalism conference of people who are journalists on Twitter, you know, grifters. and this is nothing against any of those people. Sorry. But like, I, I didn't on. mean to say grifters. Nothing against those people. <laughs> yeah. Like nothing against those people, but like, come on, like you guys are just actually cut some people out to make it more pleasant for you people to talk to yourself. Just start a Slack group, you know, or like start a discord or something like that and just talk to yourselves that way. Like you don't have to like pretend like you're all high and mighty and you're not on Elon Musk's like sinking battleship and that you've like found a life raft and now you're going to have like better toots, you know, than tweets or whatever. Like it's, it's silly, you know, and it's honestly a bit offensive, but like, um, I don't know. I, 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 my thought is that basically, look, I think that like we had this explosion of podcasts. We had an explosion of, some publications we had Substack. all of that was fueled by twitter it all was right like i mean max does like i talked to people at Substack too and one of the things that they say is that the only way that they can peg the number of the advance that they used to give you they don't give those out anymore but the one that they used to give out was based on how many twitter followers you had right because they couldn't think of any other metric oh, wow. where yeah. you could advertise that your Substack was out there it's because the only advertising marketing vehicle for something like that is through Twitter. And they're correct about that, right? Like you can't post that on Instagram and have people like share you know, like yeah. or something like that. Um, and so I don't know. I think that for the left, it is an actual disaster, I think, right? Like in terms of like, I do think mm-hmm. that a lot of people were pushed pretty far to the left, you know, during the Bernie campaign. I think they're, that like a new type of journalism did start to appear. It was the first time you started hearing about that. A lot of that can be attributed to Twitter. And like, I think it's bad if these publications now have to go back and be like, the part. I used to always joke with Andy about this, like the guy who stands on the gates of Columbia University on 116th Street and passes out like, you know, socialist newspapers. Like, like, you can't go back to that guy, you know? And then like, if nothing is as centralized where it has as many people on it, you know, then like. Like it is a bad thing, right? Like it's a bad thing to happen. And that part does make me, I think Maximilian or Max Alvarez is totally correct about that, you know? And I think that the bad parts of Twitter that people complain about are generally people like me who like spend too much time on Twitter. I don't have to spend that much time on fucking Twitter. You know, I'm like, I don't have to. It's like my, (laughs) it's my choice to spend that much time. And like, I just don't want to have to like make take responsibility for my own actions <laughs> and that's like not very sympathetic right and so i don't know <laughs> it's just like save me like a 42 year old dead in berkeley journalist for the new yorker i need more of my own free time you know like it's not really like a very good 
it's like not a very good fit but that's like sort of the sentiment between a lot of this like hell site type of stuff where it's just like okay yeah. dude, like you know you don't have to be on here all day well just surely people enjoy like people they the people who call it the hell site love twitter more than anyone else. oh my god they love it most. yeah i yeah. should say i like i i totally agree timmy i don't think like i don't want to give the impression that i think that like the what happens on Twitter is you get on Twitter and you're just chatting with a bunch of working class comrades and that like puts <laughs> you there. But I think there's this very subtle way that Twitter kind of um, opens up people who would otherwise be fairly straightforwardly establishment journalists yeah. to other worlds of thought and systems of thought, usually just from other members of the same class who happen to be like mm. academics say, or whatever else. And I think that's the like the subtle movement to push to the left, the, the new networks, like social networks and ideas that you can take part in. That's the stuff that's positive. Mm-hmm. Like it's distorting. It's not real. It's or, or or it has a weird relationship to the real. But like, um, and there's so much more we could do. I I totally agree with that. Um, but that's that's the stuff that I think will get missed. Is like being having having more openings to like different kinds of expertise, different ideas of expertise. It's all still expertise, but it's you know it's from a different place. That's helpful. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's better to like hire like let's say a newsroom of a hundred hires three people from Twitter, you know, and that they're not like the same background as everyone else, right? And that's probably the most that they're gonna ever hire, right? Like to be realistic, like maybe three. But that's better than it used to be, you know? Like it's better than like everyone just being someone's friend from Princeton or in the eating club or whatever the fuck it's called, you know, like and that their friends or like their mom's friend's sister or something like that or their dad's friend's nephew or something like that becomes gets these jobs that's how like there's so much rampant nepotism in the media industry and i think twitter did a little bit of you know loosening of that now how much is very much up for debate and i would go on the low end of that estimate but i don't know like i get i have fun i don't know i like you know i enjoy like watching the king's games with like 80 weird king's tweeters and like you know like they're like the most positive thinking people in the world it makes me happy you know sports just, is still a great yeah, place to i was gonna shot. say where are the sports people gonna go yeah <laughs> well there that's that that also is it's like it is really fun to watch sports while tweeting you know i do it all the time especially all i do you know at night <laughs> We noticed, like, yeah. I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm upset that I'm not going to be able to do that anymore. It's fun. I like watching obscure sports that nobody on my time who follows me. Like when I tweet about UFC or something, and it's like the same four people fave my tweet. And I'm just like, all right, what's up, Greg? <laughs> <laughs> it's cool, awesome. you know, but um, I think I would be sad. And I thought yeah. maybe that's why I'm thinking it's probably like, Last week, I started thinking like, oh, no, it's, it might end. But then like by the end of the week, I was like, ah, it seems like he's pulling back a lot of this stuff. And he's just kind of like trolling almost, you know. I don't know. The last thing I'll ask you, Max, is like, and Tammy, actually, Tammy, because you brought this up, I think. And I want to know your thoughts first. Do you think, do you buy any of this conspiracy theory that like he's trying to, you know, I went to <laughs> a party on Saturday, which was very rare for me. But um, my friend was there and he was like, he was like, the sink thing might be that he's trying to sink the company, not Oh, let my that God. T- <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. I do not buy that. That's hilarious, though. I love no it. No way. <laughs> no fucking way. That was very clever. Shout out to Chad. <laughs> That's <laughs> hilarious. Oh, but that, like... You know, like, because it kind of makes sense where it's like if Elon Musk is so angry at like people like Ryan Mack, right, like a friend of the podcast and, you know, somebody that I like to troll on Twitter, but someone who I have a great deal of affection for and respect for. But like some, you know, like somebody like Ryan has been like a thorn in Elon's side, right? 
or like the New York Times or something like that. And he feels like all their power flows through Twitter, right? Then like, maybe he's trying to destroy it. Max, what do you think? Tammy says no. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I, I, okay. you, the, the conspiracy theory I like, and I'm just, we'll close out the podcast with Matt Levine. Levine suggested in his <laughs> newsletter today. And essentially, so right now all these banks have all this, have all this debt that they're trying to sell. They, they loaned Elon all this money to buy Twitter and they have all this debt they're trying to sell and they're selling it at like 60 cents on the dollar. It's so cheap because right. they see how badly it's going as anyone else. And Levine's theory is that Elon is trying to, well, I don't think he really believes this, but the, the theory he floats is that Elon is trying to get the debt price even lower so he can just buy it off the banks himself, basically save himself about three years worth of interest payments. Yeah. So the conspiracy theory is just that he's oh trying to make God. it look really bad so he can get out of debt to, you know, Goldman Sachs or whoever else and then just run it like a regular Good company. Lord. Oh, that, that was, is yeah. I like that one too. I like both of them, honestly. <laughs> I'm like 10% in the bag for both of them, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> like I, I kind of believe that, like, maybe. I mean, but I do think that if he wa- really wanted to do that, he would have let Trump back on by this point, you know? Mm, yeah, and I, think I think it's so weird. Too. Although Trump did say he wouldn't come back. Yeah, with you know? yeah, maybe he feels like he it might get rejected respect by Trump. Trump. It was just like, it was definitely like, I've been thrown out of better parties than this moment from Trump, you know? And I was like, good. <laughs> you don't have to come back. <laughs> um, okay, well, Max, thanks for coming Thank you, on. We've yeah, kept you long enough, especially. Good talking to you guys. Yeah, I love your newsletter. Max, uh, maxreed.substack.com. That's right. right. Um, the, the most recent one about FTX is behind the paywall, but I'm in the TTSG Discord. Hit me up. I'll forward you a free copy Aww. so you can see what we're all about. No, thank you, Max. And it's really, I mean, it's very, very, very good. And sometimes it gets weird. Sometimes <laughs> it's, and then. Um, so funny but, and smart. And, yeah. You guys are Yeah. Curious. And also there's like these amazing reading lists. So like if you need to catch up on something, then it is like a great way. I don't know, Max, like you're aggregation skills are amazing as oh, somebody who like thank you yeah you would be like <clears throat> a fact checker's dream <laughs> as opposed to me it's like annotate what <laughs> yeah. actually the annotate. last time i got fact checked was for a new york bag and i had to send i like a half of the reporting was me just gossiping with some friends in the tech industry and i had to send these incredibly embarrassing screenshots of like, <laughs> of, like lack of like fake slide to be like yeah, so I'm the guy called, you know, I, I shouldn't even say what my name's were. I'm the guy called this, and, like, that's my buddy who works at Snapchat, and he's called that. That's and, amazing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just kidding. I'm not bad at annotating, but sometimes I, like, the thing that happens to me is that, like, I'll put something down, and then I'll, like, forget where I got it from, and then I'll spend 40 minutes trying to find that it. That actually is hard. yeah. Yeah, and I'll, like, reread everything. Um, but, yeah. Subscribe to Max's Substack. Also, subscribe to our Substack, goodbyes.substack.com. Um, yeah, I don't know. This is like our equivalent of like a, uh, you know, um, yearly NPR. Subs- <laughs> what are they called? Like subscription uh, drive. Donation drive. Yeah. Yeah. Donation drive, yeah. which is just us reminding you that you could give us money if you wanted to help support the show. You will get access to our Discord where we talk about all sorts of different things. Um, Korean dramas organizing basketball tech i had a lot of people talking about this ftx thing recently um does it mean we do have a lot of people people just share memes big fan of the memes yeah yeah. memes Do we have we have a lot of people who listen to the show in the discord who work in the tech industry oh yeah um it's been in that a lot of people sort of sharing their stories conversing you know types of things that happen in online communities um if you'd like to get in contact with us it is 
time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com or at ttsg pod you can dm us um or yeah oh you can also support us at patreon.com slash ttsg pod max thanks for coming on and uh to everyone else we will see you next week